watching this show then i'm reading the book and i'm always like compiling a bunch of notes and usually the page amount of notes that i come in at are like eight to nine well for somehow i got like 12 pages of notes on this guy so i don't even know what that means but i'm shocked that's all i can say hi everybody my name's matt welcome to the brothers trek about this week we are talking about who mourns for Adonis. It's a good question. Maybe we'll get an answer by the end of this one. But before we do, let's uh, say hi to my brother Ken in Houston. Say hello, Ken. Hailing frequencies are open. They sure are. So uh, let's uh, you know, let's get into some of these notes here. Let's see what uh, what the heck I wrote down here. First of all, I'll say this. This was uh, one of those during the uh period just before season two when uh nbc gave them a bunch of money to try and come up with a bunch of scripts this was one of the first scripts that they decided to come up with it was called uh, olympus revisited and it was a gene roddenberry idea so they gave it to this guy gilbert ralston who i'll get into in just a minute but he writes a story outline then writes the first teleplay the second teleplay then gene coon does a polish on it then he does a second polish on it then DC Fontana does a rewrite on it. Then uh, it pretty much goes to production after that. Gene Kuhn does one more pass on it, of course. But uh, I think it's interesting out, how... You're leaving out the muses. <laughs> That's right, of course. The <laughs> eternal muses who are always giving us the uh, important information in the Greek, uh, Greek dramas. That's right. So, like, there's what? There's a muse of history, Cleo. That's the only one I know, by the okay. way. Oh. There's a <laughs> there's a muse of dance, and then there's like four or five different muses of poetry. One for like every kind of poetry: lyric poetry, epic poetry, pastoral poetry, choral poetry. <laughs> so one, one one of them or more must have been lurking behind the writers here, giving them inspiration. Right there up oh, on well Mount Parnassus. Hiding out, hanging, hiding away from everyone. That's right. So uh, Gilbert Ralston was a uh, former newspaper man from Ireland uh, for television. He had written several episodes for a bunch of the shows we've already talked about. I Spy, The Big Valley, The Wild Wild West. He actually helped create The Wild Wild West, uh, being uh, the series uh, pilot episode writer. In later life, after Star Trek, he would go on to write a uh, cult classic in the horror genre called Willard, which you might remember was a, a horror movie in 1971 about a uh, scary rat. And then he did the follow-up to that movie, which was a sequel about a rat named Ben. Two interesting uh, things there in Ralston's uh, resume. He was a, a great choice to develop this, this script because... He said of himself, immodestly, I am an expert in Grecian history, 
and I got interested in some of the characters that tucked away in some of the various textbooks. Using Apollo just seemed like a good idea, and Gene Kuhn liked it very much. So Ralston turned in his story outline, changing the title of the story to Last of the Gods. And in this version of the story, as with all of the scripts right up into the very end, uh, we find Lieutenant Palamas becomes impregnated by Apollo. So this was something we'll get into a little bit later. But yes, in this uh, initial version and uh, for every uh, possible version afterwards, uh, she becomes pregnant with Apollo's baby. So there's a bunch of conversation at the beginning of the episode, right? In which mm-hmm. it's almost like a foregone conclusion that she's leaving. Yes. Right? I yeah. mean, so the, at first they're talking about Mr. Scott. Oh, Mr. Scott, you know, you're going to, it's not going to end well. You know, you think she's Miss Wright, but I don't think she thinks you're Mr. Wright. Poor Mr. Scott. And then the, the conversation switches to her. Yeah, at some point she's just going to run, you know, find a man and, and leave the, the service because. Women may join the service, but apparently their husbands don't, like, become service husbands. And, you know, Kirk's like, well, it's not like I'm losing an officer. I'm, I'm, I'm losing an officer. Yep. So they've, they've already arrived at the conclusion that, like, she's leaving. Yeah. And as you watch it today, you're like, oh, well, you, this explains the pay gap, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Employers just look at women and go, yeah, she's getting pregnant and leaving. Well, you know, she's not going to stick around. She's not going to be with the company for any period of time. And you bring up this stuff about how up until the last rewrite, she was supposed to be impregnated by Apollo. And that's the kind of thing that, that actually would take you out of the service. I now have a super being, a hero. I'll name him Theseus. <laughs> That's another one of those weirdly 60s things that we get into. You know, again, this is like the beginning of the first couple seasons of Mad Men where we, you know, the, the women in the office are, you know, preyed upon a lot and, and whatnot. So uh, here we go. We get another one of those like, it's funny too, because I was going to, I didn't know if I was going to say this, but I'll just do it now. Is that in, in, several early drafts of the script, we also find out that her husband had died in a recent tragedy aboard the Enterprise and that she was basically using Scotty as like the rebound guy and then goes on to get knocked up by, you know, by Apollo. So, you know, everyone at NBC, of course, was like, well, first of all, you know, getting pregnant out of marriage, that's a bad thing. (laughs) Second of all, you know, who's... Well, that's true. It is very Greek. Um, but secondly, you know, we also have this, who is this woman who's, you know, lost her husband and then goes on to like start flirting with, you know, a character we all like and love, Scotty. It's like, this woman seems like a tramp. She doesn't seem like somebody who we, you know, is the perfect ideal of what a 60s woman would be or whatever, you know? So it's very interesting how they, how this episode treads upon all of those weird 60s women are very different and do very different things than what men do, you know, compared to uh, how things are today. But we see where it all comes from, which is funny because again, speaking of Mad Men, I had a friend of mine who like 
tried to watch the first season of Mad Men and was just like, and this is a guy who was, he was so offended by like what was going on. He couldn't go on with the rest of the show to which I was like, no, but the point is, is like you watch what happened then and you go, oh, well, thank God we've come so far right, yeah. <laughs> and how much further we may have to go, you know? So like one of the conceptions of progress and progress is a core idea that Star Trek is mm -hmm. that when you look back, it's not very pleasant because you're like, this is a messed up thing that they did. And so they're constantly making statements in Star Trek about how the current era is primitive and back. We don't have money, money. <laughs> oh, you silly. Or we don't do that. That's, you know, barbaric yeah. and, you know, way in the past. We stopped doing that in the 22nd century or, you know, whatever the thing is. Right. They're always putting in context that they are now the more advanced future. And if you actually have progress, you can't help but do that. But look back at your your fathers and your grandfathers, your great grandfathers and go, they were messed up because they didn't have X, Y or Z. So uh, Robert Justman really loved this uh, episode. He said he felt like it was going to be a cerebral story, a complete change of pace for Star Trek. He thought that that's going to be awesome. Roddenberry, however, was more concerned that he was writing science fantasy or science mythology and not so much action adventure science fiction like they were going for on Star Trek. So uh, he flew out to Nevada to meet with Ralston, talked to him, then uh, sent back uh, this part in a memo for Gene Kuhn where he says... Our main problem with this outline seemed to be that it edged into fantasy now and then. My meeting with Gill consisted of mainly finding a firm inner logic for the story, which emphasized that these gods, these, uh, these gods were merely an unusual life form. So that's interesting. It's also one of the like classic, uh, you know, like History Channel, uh, you know, type shows where it's like aliens built the pyramids, aliens oh, built Stonehenge. Aliens built, you know, whatever. And so this is obviously an old idea, yeah. right? And serious Star Trek playing into that particular trope that, you know, the religion of the past, even though, of course, you know, there are references to Christianity that are very oblique in this, in this episode. We don't need gods. The one is just fine, right? Mm -hmm. Which I thought was an interesting line. Well, again, I think, like, Roddenberry left to his own devices would leave it out, right? Yep. Uh, but it's the 60s, so this kind of be, you know, some affirmation of the, the social world. Well, hold on. Before we go on, I'll just, because this is my next note, uh, uh -huh. Gene Messerschmidt at NBC Broadcast Standards wasn't bothered by the fantasy, uh, but the controversy. She requested that the religious aspects be treated with dignity and good taste and that Caroline's pregnancy be not treated lightly or as commendable. <laughs> so there we go. We got NBC stepping in again to be like, uh, be careful where you tread, guys. Be careful where you tread. Who is that? Uh, she was Jean Messerschmidt. She was, the, uh, she was the head of broadcast standards. Right. And so, you know, as you often find and it, it makes sense that the head of broadcast stands would be a woman mm -hmm. because frequently you know you look at the old west the men basically bring aggression and violence they bring no civilization they don't bring rules right right it's a free-for-all and then the, it's the women who bring the rules so you know we can sit here and go oh you know they it's weird that they treated women differently right right but a lot of those rules 
weren't coming like they were being imposed by men. They were being imposed by women, and then men were embracing the rules as the way to win. Just as it was in the old west. So uh, Stan Robertson, who was you know their uh, their liaison to NBC, who we've talked about a million times, says, uh, "How will the viewers accept or not accept the fact that our heroes have ventured into quote another galaxy in which Apollo does exist?" We have prided ourselves on the fact that Star Trek is a series which is believable, that in 200 years or so, our voyages of the Enterprise could actually take place. So, of course, uh, Stan Robertson, he didn't uh, appreciate this script at all, but uh, let it go forward if they added more action-adventure, as always. So this is your problem of, you see, you can have an environment in which, like, anything is possible, right? We can, we can meet uh -huh. Abraham Lincoln, which, of course, is coming up. Yep, we're gonna. We could, uh, you know, we, we could have, have all kinds of weird stuff happening. Meet Apollo. <coughs> Meet magicians. I think that was the first episode of this season. Yep, cats, Papa. Uh huh. And you know, we'll just kind of give it a a veneer of of science fiction and call it good. And a little bit of that adds, you know, some interest and flavor, and you'd call that, I think, speculative fiction, right? Uh -huh. So there is this, this interesting kind of science fiction-y problem of what if Earth was visited by aliens? And, of course, there are episodes of Star Trek, um, one with, uh, I think it's called The Apple, in which Kirk destroys the dragon-shaped, you know, supercomputer that's being worshipped as a god by primitive people on a planet. Mm -hmm. We have Which we've other... also already seen before. Yeah. Well, I mean, but here, it's, it's you're dealing with this. They're, they're primitives, and they worship the thing, right? As opposed yeah. to Landru, where they're just like, but he, he provides us with peace and meaning. And we'll get, in Next Generation, the Mintakins, and Picard is worshipped as a god. And, you know, so Star Trek deals with both sides of this problem of when spacefaring people show up in primitive societies, how else do you interpret that? You don't go, oh, look, they're spacemen who have technologies and science far beyond ours. You go, they're gods. We knew you were out there. Now here you are. Nice to meet you. <laughs> so uh, another thing Stan Robertson didn't like is he didn't like the idea of the big hand in space uh, stopping the Enterprise. He thought that was a little too, uh, you know, voyage under the sea or lost in space. He didn't feel like it was quite believable. Robert Justman, our fa favorite producer who loves to uh, strike anything that could cost any amount of money, says, and uh, I quote, that's an interesting trick that Mr. Apollo does. I mean, growing inside until he is enormous. The last time I saw that was Aladdin and his magic lamp. This trick is not impossible to do, but it is going to be very time-consuming and inordinately expensive for a television show. Apollo also blasts, you know, lightning out of his fingers. Our people shoot a lot of phaser blasts uh, at him and at the temple, and the ship is shooting, you know, phaser blasts at the temple, basically fearing that all of this was going to cost way too much money. Uh, he also says that, like, it would get so expensive to, like, just shoot the phaser. Yeah. Right? So there's, like, a guy going... Shooting uh, phasers, $2,000. <laughs> yep. Shooting phasers, $2,000. Typically a producer's job. Shooting phasers, 
You know, you guys are spending 18000 on Pacers alone? <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, with that kind of money, I could have hired, uh, you know, a, a guest star. True. So he ends uh, that memo with this. With uh, parts of the, uh, the the temple crumbling and disappearing and our people continuing to fire, Apollo growing and expanding in size. Tell you what, I'm just going to turn in my resignation and go off to the South Seas. And then Gulf Western, <laughs> Gulf Western will find out about the cost of this show and renege on the whole purchase of the studio. Because it was at this <laughs> Right? If you remember yeah. movies from the 80s, Paramount Pictures was actually bought by Gulf Western. And so at this point, they were already negotiating the purchase for Desilu. Uh, this will obviously be something we talk about a little bit more, but this is where it's all happening is during this episode. So then, uh, after, as I said, after those first two uh, drafts, Kuhn then comes in and rolls up his sleeves and does his own rewrite. So uh, he removes the funeral, you know, at the beginning so that uh, we no longer have her having to deal with the death of a husband while also, you know falling in love with Scott, so that's good. So, you know, that all makes sense, but you'd expect it to be, you know, like six months apart, right? Yeah. You'd expect there to be some grieving time, and now she's grieving in this other way, the rebound. Right. But, like, if you do the funeral at the beginning of the show, it's like, you feel like it's hours. <laughs> right? I mean... Right. Well, wait, that just happened. <laughs> Even if you put the little, you know, Chiron at the bottom that says six months ago, people, you know, the, the mental thing you walk away with is one scene, she's burying her husband. The next scene, she's hitting on Scott. We've discussed much about how uh, the producers and uh, NBC are all about, well, we got to make William Shatner the focus of the show. He's our hero. So in a note... I should have written down who wrote this one. I think that this is a Roddenberry note, but maybe I'll remember in the middle. Oh, no, no, yeah, this is a Roddenberry note. He says, uh, this is an ideal script to focus an audience interest on Kirk and his enormous problems as ship commander. Uh, we would do uh, Bill Shatner a lot of good in this show by showing his cleverness, his strength, his ability to extract and correlate all the various abilities, specialties, and strengths of his people. Let him uh, be angry at proper times. Let him be impatient when they don't come through for him. Let's let him force them when necessary, trick them when necessary, which we saw like several times in that last episode. Uh, pat them on the back when necessary. In short, let Kirk be the leader. If we can solve this problem, Bill will get his Emmy nomination last year. And more importantly, we may have used the huge problems that could plague us in the future. Which, of course, if you remember at the end of last year, uh, it was Leonard Nimoy who got the uh, Emmy nomination and not uh, Bill Shatner. So, Well, you know, as I'm sure you know, uh -huh. someone who pays attention to, to acting things, these awards tend to go to people who are, like, doing unusual things, right? Right, it, yeah, it, absolutely. It's, it's really not an award for, you acted really well. We believed in your character. It's more like your character was hard to imagine, but you did it. Yes. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, they're not transmitted. Right. Boost your power answers. We're barely reading your transmissions. We are at full output enterprise. I'm getting no signal from it, sir. No changes. Anything over? 
All wavelengths dominated by ionization effects, sir. And then, just like that, technology fails you. And here you are, re-recording an episode you've already done. Again. Recording it three weeks later. Yay! So, hopefully picking up right where we left off. We're going to be talking about uh, Michael Forrest here. He's the guy who played uh, Apollo in this episode. He says that that someone called uh, Craig Noel who was the head of the uh, Old Globe Theater in San Diego. He described the character. So uh, they wanted to know if there was an actor there who could fill a, fill this bill. So he told them about me. And it was interesting because uh, I went in, I think, three times for the interview. They wanted a British actor to begin with. And they actually, uh, that was me saying that, not him. As a matter of fact, asked me to do it in a British accent. They felt that the British idiom would sound better in terms of the language. And I said... I don't think it would be wise for me to try that for this particular role, but I can give you sort of this mid-Atlantic theater speech. So they told me to read it again, and I did it that way. And then I was asked back again to read it for somebody else, and it seemed to me that they really weren't sure what they wanted, but eventually they cast me. So that's how that went. Uh, I believe last time we discussed, uh, you, or you talked a little bit about that mid-Atlantic uh, theater speech, if you recall or can say anything about that mid-Atlantic theater speech. Yeah, so it's a, it's a dead dialect. So it used to be something that people learned, especially if they were, you know, a little bit educated. In mm-hmm. other words, um, it's a function of going to certain kinds of schools, prep schools, and, and it disappeared in the middle of the 20th century. So if you go back and watch old movies, you can hear that guy saying... You know, train crash on the 12, you know, and so <laughs> forth. He's speaking that way. You, you hear it in newsreels. You hear it in movie versions of newsreels. You know, there are some celebrities who, who spoke that way. And there are old actors who spoke that way and had became such a part of their speech. You know, when... Uh, James Bob- Cagney, am I right? Probably. Uh, yeah, see, Bob- yeah, come and get me. Yeah, his is probably part of the natural core of where that came from, but he's he's not, at least when he's doing a gangster. Yeah. Doing the kind of, I went to prep school version of that uh, accent. Uh, who is uh, uh, Catherine Hepburn? Had it. Oh, Catherine Hepburn, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill Buckley had a version of it. He also spent some time in the South, which slowed his speech down. But his particular way of, you know, making vowel sounds, I think, was very uh, kind of mid-Atlantic. So, uh, actually, he and Leonard Nimoy actually knew each other because they had a a (coughs) crate. Actually, he and uh, Leonard Nimoy uh, knew each other. They had appeared together in the uh, critically acclaimed 1966 movie Death Watch. So uh, he was a pretty uh, busy guy, but he really wanted the role of Apollo pretty badly. <clears throat> and uh, he said, uh, I thought this was a pretty good script. He said, uh, I'd studied Shakespeare for years, he says, worked at the Shakespeare Festival in San Diego and done Shakespeare throughout the country. So when I saw this role, I was like, this is the kind of thing that's closest to my heart. I can see dimensions in the character, a character bigger than life, a major kind of force. 
And uh, the script had this kind of tragic ending that was pure Shakespeare, he said. Plus, if you want to be considered for that new Oedipus Rex they're planning. Right, exactly. What better than to have played a Greek god? Here's how good I look in a toga. So uh, Leslie Parrish, she's the one who plays uh, the lieutenant here who falls for Apollo. She got cast thanks to Jodie Agosta, who uh, she had worked with Roddenberry on The Lieutenant. And uh, prior to arriving here, appeared in two episodes of The Wild Wild West, uh, one of which she appeared playing a green-skinned space traveler, which is weird. For her work on the big screen, she was in uh, 1963's For Love or Money. She was nominated for a Golden Globe as the most, most promising female newcomer, even though she had appeared in uh, many popular movies before this, including The Manchurian Candidate in 1962. And uh, her first starring role on the big screen was playing Daisy May in the movie musical adaptation of the Broadway show Little Abner, which I did in college, which is funny. Larry we get a John- Johnny Mercer. Oh, really? Johnny Mercer did the book. I did not know that. Yep. That would be uh, why the uh, lyrics are so clever in that show. That's right. Let's see. John Winston here, who plays Lieutenant Kyle all the time. He he gets moved up from the transporter room and gets assigned to the bridge here. Gets to talk to Spock a couple of times. That's fun. And then uh, Eddie Paskey as Lieutenant Leslie gets uh, to take Chekhov's place both of which names we have uh, heard a couple of times before in the past. So, and we may have talked about this uh, briefly in the earlier part of this episode before we had to come back and retag all of this. Uh, an idea that lasted up until filming was where Lieutenant Parrish's character, uh, Caroline, was impregnated by Apollo, apparently during one of those fade-out scenes that happens in this episode. But what a fun concept that would have been to deal with, Right. I mean, especially if, as we always wished, the show was non-episodic. You know, if in a couple episodes down the road, she discovers she's pregnant, and then we all have to deal with it. As opposed to, like, finding out in the final five minutes, and then barely having any time to deal with it, and then maybe never seeing her again. So maybe it's a better thing that got uh, nixed. But, of course, NBC Standard and Practices says, ooh, no, that's too controversial, this whole out of wedlock thing is not right. No intercourse, not a marriage. That would be wrong. Especially for Greek gods who never did that kind of thing. No, exactly. No, that's exactly. That's not in any classical literature anyway. <laughs> Leslie Parrish goes on to say this about these two characters, Apollo and her, uh, her, her character, the lieutenant. The sadness of these characters was vivid. The feelings that we had were so honest and intense. I never considered myself a method actor, but when I got something like this, I was, it just poured my heart and soul into it. For an actress, it was beautiful, beautiful opportunity, but the tragedy of it really struck me, and I felt that they really loved each other. And the decision of what we, the Enterprise crew, decided to do in the end was the right one, but just agonizing. It was painful for me, and that last scene together... When we, uh, we were crying, but we were really crying. I always wonder about stuff like this. I mean, being an amateur actor myself, which of course, aren't we always the judgiest, but <laughs> I, I, I don't always think that an actor, as an actor, just because you're feeling it on stage, it doesn't always mean that it's going to translate well on screen. 
Because in my opinion, it doesn't quite translate here for me at the end of this episode. You think that's the uh, amount of close-ups or... Um, between movie and television. <coughs> I think that's part of it. I think that, uh, and I don't know, and maybe it's just because, too, I sort of don't emotionally get invested into Star Trek. You know what I mean? Because there's not a lot of episodes where emotion takes over. So maybe that just has something to do with it. And we just I don't know. Met, that's a good question. We just, we just met this lieutenant. You know, so That's true. About, Maybe if it was Ohura so, or somebody uh, else. So there's that be, scene uh, at the end when uh, Adonis well, has and, got and, uh, you know, all of weather pouring the into. The most emotional uh, moments so far have been the death of McCoy. You know, that was apparently was affecting. Yeah. Now, of course, I don't know exactly where this fits in on the timeline, but I think we this is the beginning of season two, right? Yeah. Yeah, so we've we started with uh, uh, Amok Time, or no? The, uh, no. the one where... No, Cat's Paw was the first one. Okay. At some point soon, we'll, have, <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll, we'll visit uh, the first broadcast episode where the uh, Spock goes to Pond Far, and I think that's an, that's an emotionally arresting, uh, intense yeah. episode as well. But those are characters, they're, they're part of the trio. You know, they're the ones that were most invested, and we see them every episode. And so yeah. when stuff happens to them, we really get into it. We, whereas Lieutenant of the Week, I mean, it would almost be more affecting if, like, Lieutenant Kyle died. <laughs> yeah, right. If something Fair. happened to him, you'd be like, wow, he's, he's been sitting there, you know, somewhere on the ship every episode. And he got wonked. Oh, man, that's messed up. So then there's that scene at the end where Adonis has all sorts of weather pouring into where our poor lieutenant is sitting. You're saying they're in Texas. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you never know what's going to happen in Texas. Suddenly the weather changes at the drop of a hat. Uh, so yeah, so uh, but that, uh, that part of the production schedule, they called it the Rape of the Wind. Uh, that seems uh, appropriate there. Uh, Parrish had this to say about that scene. That was a really, really violent scene, and it was hard to do. Uh, the giant fan they used was a monster. I, I don't even think they called it a fan. They had some other name for it. It was like 10 feet around. It was huge. I think that there were like three of them. I mean, I was just taking a pounding, I had, and it was hard to stay together, and the gown didn't want to stay on. I mean, at this point, it was too much of a gown like that to ask. <laughs> it was too much to ask of a gown like that, she said. Day as well. In those days, you had to be careful because the censors were very strict. You couldn't do certain things. In fact, you won't believe this, but I had to take the hair off of my chest because evidently gods don't have hair on their chests. I've never seen a real god. Have you? I don't know what they have, but apparently it's not hair on their chest. So uh, Mark Daniels finally wraps this one. He's one day behind schedule. Up to this point, he had been uh, almost uh, picture perfect when it came into getting his his episodes in on time and on schedule, but unfortunately, because of some of the uh, technical shots they had to do, and uh, with the with the giant fan and with him growing large and all of these shots, uh, he unfortunately uh, fell a day behind. Not good. 
Mark Daniel said this, six days is not a very long time to do an hour show. You could barely get it done if everything went right. So if one element goes sour, where are you? It's just incredible and impossible. And the miracle is that anything that anything worthwhile comes out of it is amazing. Michael Forrest also has this to say about William Shatner, which of course we were just discussing earlier in this episode <clears throat> before the break, that uh, we were having a, a situation between Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner, where of course now uh, Nimoy had just won the Emmy. And so now they were really trying hard to make uh, Shatner look like he was the big, strong captain type. So uh, Michael Forrest says this, there was a bit of a problem with William Shatner, however, you never saw me standing with them. We were always in different, we were always in different shots. We would be take, uh, we'd be talking to one another, but we wouldn't be on camera at the same time uh, because I was so much taller than he was. So there you go, another example of uh, having to use the old, uh, what do they call it, the box storage box, the milk crate box. Anyway, soap box. Huh? Soap box. Soap? Soapbox, there you go. Well, uh, that's it for all the behind-the-scenes stuff. I'm ready to jump into this episode if you are ready, sir. Let's do it. Captain's log, starting. It's five-year mission. So this episode always starts with one of my favorite musical openings. It's the tinkly one. Uh, here we go. So we start with this female officer, uh, the lieutenant here played by Parrish, who is dressed uh, in a cage uniform, it looks like, right? But it's uh, been pinned weird to almost look like a toga. You get to see a little more of the uh, black undershirt on this one. So Bone says, oh, you look uh, tired. Which, you know, is not the type of thing you should ever say to a woman. I don't think if you've ever tried, you've probably gotten slapped. Boy, you look tired today, don't you? But I guess McCoy is just so charming, he can get away with it. So Scotty says, oh, I know it. I'll help you. Oh, there I go with the Irish accent again. He says, uh, I know it'll help you. Why don't we uh, uh, Why don't we go for a little bit of coffee? That would be great. Which Kirk like does it like a 180, looks over his shoulder like, what is he? Is he asking her out? Like, what's happening here? So I know my joke's already treading a little bit of water here, but the show itself then goes a little overboard too because uh, Bone says that he doesn't like Scotty dating Caroline. Kirk asks, well, why? And Bone says, ah, well, she's going to go off and find somebody to be with and then she's going to quit the service. You're like, wow, okay, 1960s poli- sexual politics taking over here in the future, I guess, because she's just going to quit because she found some man. Well, I think it's more and than the, that, right? So there's an assumption that they're going to go off and have two and a half kids. And she's mm-hmm. not going to want to be pregnant and, and have infants. Because one of the things that you don't see in the original series that you will see in Next Generation are children. So, right. It's a different kind of uh, vessel. Right. Uh, and then Kirk follows it up with a really funny line. He's like, uh, well, I mean, look at it this way. I'm not losing an officer. I'm I'm losing an officer. <laughs> uh, so we're in standard orbit around this uh, planet. Kirk starts uh, tells uh, Cartographic to get their details ready here. Then uh, And sensors pick up no life forms on Pollux 4 here. We know it's a Class M planet. Suddenly... We get a bunch of of reaction shots. Something is happening. We don't know what it is. And then we see it's a giant hand. 
Is it opening here? Is it waving? We don't even know. We know that it is. We know that it is pure energy, and it seems to be grabbing at the ship. <gasps> and then it does, and the ship can't move as we go to credits. We come back, star date, three, four, six, eight, point one. They uh, try rocking the ship backward and forwards to try to get out of the hand's grip. It doesn't happen. It's only energy. Uh, then they try to repel the hand. And then uh, Spock says, oh, well, there's something interesting happening over on Scanner 57. So uh, they go to Scanner 57, put it up on the big screen, and it's a man. And he's got uh, uh, like a, a olive tr- olive branch in his hair. But I don't know if he's here laurel. for good or not. He's wearing laurel. A laurel. Oh, there you go. There you go. That makes more sense for the end of the episode. Uh, he says, you have made me proud for leaving the fields and the dales of home. Kirk's like, who are you? What are you doing? Get us out of this. Then we'll talk. Apollo says, it's been 500 years. Have you learned no patience? Kirk says, hey, we are armed. We can defend ourselves. Apollo says, oh, you're just like your fathers, Agamignon, Hector, and Odysseus. Never mind the history lesson, says Kirk. Then Apollo says, you will obey me or I shall close my grip like this. And sure enough, external pressure begins to build on the hull. As much as they try and compensate, nothing work. Kirk calls it off. He says, you won, you won. Apollo says, that was your first lesson. He then tells the rest of the crew, uh, hey, meet me down on the planet. We got some stuff to talk about. Uh, But do not bring that one with the pointed ears. He reminds me of Pan. And Pan always bored me. Go ahead. We get Olympian inside baseball there. Because the, I guess uh, a little bit, yes. Yeah, because you have the Apollonian versus the Dionysian conflict going on right there. Which is what? Uh, both of them were masters of music, masters of all kinds of creative things. But... Dionysus was wild, uncontrolled. He was like chaos, drunkenness. Whereas Apollo was measured, restrained, trained. Um, art as a craft to which you practice, you know, years and years, you practice a long time. You don't just like, I'm going to sit down and sculpt something and you just whack on the stone and oh, look, there it is. But, you know, there certainly are arts where you could just kind of get up and just go, like dancing or, to a certain extent, music. You know, you see you've got a pipe and you're kind of just, uh, it's not like playing the organ or, you know, some, something complicated, harpsichord. So Dionysus represented this kind of wild, you know, chaotic approach to art. And Apollo represented the practiced, measured, restrained approach to art. And there are stories of them having contests. Amazing. Well, I know in college, Dionysus was always the uh, the uh, Greek god of theater. That was the way they were, we always used him. And yet, uh, you know, of the muses, right? One of them is is theater, and there's like mm-hmm. out of them, like six of them are different kinds of poetry. So one of them is theater. And the muses followed Apollo. So they were in his camp. Ah, gotcha. Well, I mean, I guess if you think about it, like, 
you know, theater, any kind of, it is a measured thing, right? It is a, it does actually follow much more the Apollo thought because you're rehearsing and you're, you know, you're going over, you're being, you got rehearsals all the time and you're working on blocking and, you know, dialects and all those things. And that's when Mel put much more measured. The, uh, the muse of theater is helping you out, giving you the inspiration. Right. Rather than giving in to your primal instincts and, and all that wine. So uh, Kirk and uh, Bones get ready to uh, beam down. Uh, Spock says, are you sure you should go? And he says, well, we have to go. Otherwise, we'll be a crushed eggshell where the ship used to be. So they beam down there. Now Caroline, the lieutenant, is uh, here. She will find out that she is a history and anthropology uh, officer. And McCoy says, uh, we're going to need all of those things. Apollo shows up, announcing to his children how much he has awaited this moment. Kirk then goes to question mode right away. Just typical Kirk. Oh, you've been to Earth. Or you know about Earth. Apollo says, of course I have, uh, you know, back in the day, many millions of years ago, he says. Uh, Meanwhile, Bones and Chekhov start scanning everything. Bones is scanning Apollo himself. Chekhov is trying to, you know, get a lay of the land, find out what's going on here. This is where he finally announces, too, that he is Apollo. Scanners indicate that he's just a normal humanoid, says Bones. Apollo then sees Caroline. Ooh. Calls Earth still the home of the most beautiful women. And then Scott looks at her like, uh, oh, great. How am I going to be able to compete with Apollo? I'm just a crummy engineer. Look at this guy. He's like a god and stuff. Oh, well, poor Scott. Never going to find the love of his life, is he? Apollo then informs them that they shall never leave the planet again. Kirk tries to contact the ship, but not only does his communicator not work, but Apollo also says that their transportation system no longer works either. You will stay here and worship me, he demands. Kirk says, boy, you have a lot to learn about humans. Apollo then says, oh, I can show you a thing or two about a thing or two, and he grows 20 feet high, and then says, welcome to Olympus. Commercial. Back at it, we're on the ship here, and uh, Uhura can't reach the away team. We don't know what's happening. Back on Olympus, Apollo disappears. All of a sudden, it's like he's worn out or something. <laughs> McCoy says, to coin a phrase, fascinating. <laughs> Kirk starts breaking down the mystery, but Bones can offer no answers until he studies the readings more. He does, doesn't get instant answers, I guess, anymore from his... Caroline then uh, breaks down Apollo for us, but uh, nothing seems very helpful. Both Chekhov and Scott agree that uh, it would take an immense amount of power to do everything that we've seen so far. But what's the source and how do we stop it? Kirk then asks the question that everybody else is thinking. Could this really be Apollo? So then the question I ask is, would Kirk really think that this could be Apollo or would he think that it's a trick? Like, that's what I was thinking at that time of the show. You know, I'm thinking, oh, this has got to be some kind of crazy trick. I mean, this is like the beginning of Ancient Aliens, right? Right here is where, yeah, back in the, you know, the Egyptians saw many crazy aliens coming down. Apollo then returns. He's asking for tributes and adulation and worship. Uh, Bones asks, well, what do we get in return? Apollo says, life in paradise. 
Kirk and Scotty then try to tell Apollo, Apollo that they can uh, they can show some wrath themselves. Apollo doesn't seem impressed. Kirk then says, I have men and women in that ship. No, you don't. They are mine, and I will do with them as I see fit, says Apollo. But why, asks Caroline. None of this makes sense. Oh, how like Aphrodite and Athena. Full of grace, says Apollo. Scott's a bunny over here, and he steps in. Oh, you protest, yells Apollo. And Scotty tries to shoot him, but the, the phaser's knocked out of his hand by a thunderbolt. They pick up the, the phaser. The working parts are fused. Chekhov's phaser doesn't even work. Apollo then turns back to Caroline and dresses her in a pink toga. Scotty again tries to stop Apollo, but is tossed aside like a rag doll. Boy, you'd think this guy would learn his lesson at some point, right? Caroline agrees to go off with him. Uh, Bone says, uh, oh, maybe you shouldn't. That wouldn't be a good, uh, good idea. But Kirk points out, well, he'd be hard to stop. Scott then comes to, and he's, he's crying about Caroline. And uh, Kirk lifts him up and says, well, she's doing her duty. It's time that you started doing yours as well. He sends Scott to try and discover the uh, power source. And then he says, he gets this like nice little moment here where he's like, and also, you big lunk, you could have gotten yourself killed. <laughs> he also says no more unauthorized attacks on Apollo or whatever he is and that's an order Apollo is no god oh but he could be taken as one now the ancient aliens thing really sets it sets in both him and uh, Bones start to talk about how back back in the day all of that power that he is using could be looked at by the ancient people as gods Back on the Enterprise, Spock and Sulu are trying to wrench themselves free of the giant hand, but their attempts fail. So we were talking about this earlier before the break. This week, it's Spock's turn to use Kirk's trick. He walks by her and her says, man, I just can't get any of this to work. And Spock goes, oh, she's like, well, I mean, I guess I could try and rig a bypass. Spock's like, do it. So here's another example of like the leadership tricking their uh their guests or their, i mean their crew members into uh doing their best he then goes over to the science thing where uh lieutenant kyle is working right now and he says uh, hey uh get any life signs down there he's like well i can read the uh, the away team but no signs from apollo then sulu finds finds the energy pulse but can't directly find exactly where it's coming from spock tells him well you know try and uh figure out where it's not, and let's uh, figure out where it is. Back to Apollo and Caroline. Uh, she asks about the other gods. Did they die, she asks. Well, not as you know it, he says. It's like, she, Jim, she, not as you know it. Not as you know it, right. Captain. <laughs> Lots of things we don't know about this giant old galaxy, huh? She says. The earth has changed, and so the gods changed. Here we learn an important lesson. We cannot survive without love and worship. It's like to us, like you need food, he says. Uh, we could have destroyed everything on the earth after they gave up the gods, but we did not wish to. So uh, they go back to Olympus because uh, it was quiet and sad on earth without being adulated and they waited, eventually knowing that all things must pass, even the gods. 
I knew you would come, he says, for more adulation. I knew that you would make yourself here to Olympus. Then he starts to uh, look lovingly at Caroline. He says that he loves her. She says, "Is that could that be? He says, even the gods of old took mortals, he says. And then puts his hands on her shoulder roughly and kisses her. Back to our crew who are standing around uh, the uh, rather Grecian columns. They can't find the origin just like Sulu couldn't back on the ship. Kirk, well, Apollo has no problem tapping into it. I was thinking, well, he's sure back in that meadow tapping something, right? <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, Bones has found that Apollo uh, has an extra organ in his chest. So they begin to speculate that this must be how Apollo is getting his energy. They ask after care. Uh, Apollo returns. It also allows him to digest ambrosia. Yeah, he sure does talk about the, nect- the sweet nectars and stuff, doesn't he, a little bit? That's what we could be doing, but instead. So uh, Apollo returns. They ask after Caroline. He says, she is no longer of your concern. Spock, a third time. Spock. Scott, a third time, not having learned his lesson, attempts to attack Apollo, who this time uses thunderbolts to keep him back. Thunderbolts and very, very frightening. Galileo. Kirk declares him and his uh, crew enemies. We are not your followers, we are our enemies, he says. And Ap- Apollo chokes Kirk out as we go to commercial. Very, very, very frightening. Again, Galileo. Back at it, Apollo sits upon his throne. And then suddenly he appears weak and he disappears. Kirk and Scott come through, or come to from being, you know, knocked out and stuff. We're back to another briefing room scene, but this time on the planet around a picnic table, a stone picnic table. Kirk speculates again, some more ancient alien theories. I mean, most myths are based in fact, right? Kirk then uh, says he remembers classic myths. He goes, wasn't it true that even then when the gods were done expending energy that they required rest? Hmm. So if we can wear him out, we can overtake him, he says. Bones states the obvious that it might get one of them killed, but Kirk says, no, this is going to be the plan. Wear him out and one of us will attack while the others jump him. Bones reminds him again, this might get one of us killed. Back on the ship, Uhura is uh, rigging up her bypass. So it's funny, they're like underneath communications panel and there's just all these like circuit boards in there. Yeah. I guess they're not not using chips yet, huh? Looks really old. Mm-hmm. Looks very 60s. Spock also says uh, that there's no one else I could trust fixing something like this. Sulu also comes up empty. Nothing is happening. Spock then has Kyle's hands, Kyle, some equations, and uh, some more technobabble as we uh, go back to the planet. Spock is planning something. We just don't really know what it is. Something about equations that'll poke holes in the uh, force field. Also wrote, also, uh, Technobabbly, Technobabbly might have been a better name for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Apollo then, back on the planet. Apollo then tries to give, uh, break up the crew who are sitting talking amongst themselves. I know you're trying to overthrow me, he says. 
5,000 years ago, your tricks may have worked, says uh, Kirk, but we've come a long way. Mankind has no need for gods. One will suffice, he says. Interesting. A mention of one god here on uh, Gene Roddenberry's very uh, agnostic television show. It's true. We won't see this again until Bread and Circuses. Also interesting, too, because... uh, this is this was an NBC problem. They they were worried about the the the, the whole God thing. And initially, Kirk actually says uh, we don't need gods, but NBC was like, no, can we just mention one God or something? Because I don't like the idea of you guys talking about no gods. Apollo thinks he asks for so little, but you can have eternal life here. He says, "This again is uh, our crew not having the agency that they so want." Right? Star Trek trope. Number one, it seems like. I feel like we keep hitting on it over and over again. True. Don't take away their agency. But they will self-destruct. The crew then turn and begin laughing at Apollo. <laughs> you are nothing. You are stupid. You are a bad man. Caroline then tries to tell them to stop. She feels bad for Apollo. Looks like we're about to get another uh, silly Star Trek female who can't think beyond the love of her man. But instead... We don't, because as Kirk rushes him, trying to say, we're tired of your fireworks. Apollo is about to rain down his wrath when Caroline actually steps in between them and says to Apollo, a father does not destroy his children, she says. We can worship you. Or how can they worship you if you hurt them, she says. So actually, we get a strong woman here. The problem is is that the boys left her out of the plan, right? So uh, she accidentally stops Kirk's plan, and Kirk's a little bit pissed about it. Well, you should have brought her in. I know you don't know if you can trust her, but... Well, she was Caroline... also missing for, like, parts of the planning stages. That's true. I guess they really couldn't tell her the plan in front of Apollo. That really wouldn't right. work. Well, unless he doesn't understand Pig Latin. Then they totally could have. You're right. They could have gotten away with it. Caroline steps forward saying, uh, Apollo knows so much love. Don't hurt them. Apollo then demands that everyone from the ship be beamed down. Kirk asks if uh, Apollo will supply the sheep and the wool and the houses. He says, no, we will have to dismantle your ship. Well, that doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound like anything either Scott or Kirk would want, the dismantling of the Enterprise. No, no. He then disappears again. Scott says, we have to do something. Kirk says, well, we were until our brave lady stepped in and saved us. Kirk then says he's got one more plan up his sleeve, but it depends on the lieutenant's loyalty. Otherwise, they better get used to herding goats. Back to Apollo and Caroline. Apollo says that uh, man thinks that they have progressed so far, but no, all things will be provided for. There is an order to this universe, and I am going to bring it back, he says. Men is sheep. Even listening to this, Caroline can't help herself and kisses Apollo again as we go to commercial. And by commercial, I think we mean that they have more sex. (laughs) Seems what going to black means back in the 60s. Back to it. Kirk is still unable to reach the ship, and then Caroline enters. What's happened to her? We have to find out. Kirk says, I'll find out. Chekhov says, maybe I should assist her. Kirk says, how old are you? 22. Then I better handle it. 
That's a funny little scene. The body language between them and everything is great. It's something worth looking at. But even, you know, we just talked about it in our recent podcast on uh, uh, Thunderball. But of course, even mm-hmm. the movies in which you kind of have a obvious sexual overtones, um, you know, Bond and his uh, femme fatale, the one who betrays him. Yeah. You know, th- there's a lot of cutting away and we're just hinting at things. And uh, so it's, it's not like TV was so far behind other kinds of media. Yeah, that was Fiona, the redhead. And then also with Domino, too, there's when they have sex when they're scuba diving. Remember, in, uh, oh. you at one point were like, they had cut a scene where they had the, the bikini floats up. They were like, no, that's too far. We can't take it that far. Bubbles. We can't go any further than bubbles. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You know what we mean. Kirk approaches Caroline. Caroline says she has a message from Apollo. And it's much like we've heard before of like, just, you know, hey, if we worship him, he'll give us everything we want. Kirk says, all right, Lieutenant, you can come down from Mount Olympus. We've got work to do. She's like, what? What do you mean? Kirk then asks her to spurn Apollo. She initially rejects the idea. But Kirk says, reject him and we can move on. Accept him and the entire crew is stuck here. But she continues to sing Apollo's praises. He's kind and he wants the best of us. And he's so lonely. So Kirk says, give me your hand. We're human. We have the same backstory. Our mission is to all of humanity. Then suddenly she says, he's calling me. And off she goes, but not before Kirk gives her the, you've got your orders, Lieutenant. Back on the ship, Uhura's bypass worked somehow. Somehow fixing the hardware fixed this problem. Oh, maybe Apollo's energy field was directing itself at one part of the communication device, and so they just bypassed the communication device. It must have been what they did. Or maybe they realized that he was using eddy currents, and if they fluctuated the frequency, they could bypass the eddy currents. That's right, exactly. Because everything ultimately comes down to the fluctuation of the eddy currents. Kirk then and Spock get to talk. They pinpointed the energy focus. Spock says, is there a structure somewhere near you? Kirk says, ah, yeah. So it's the temple, the Grecian columns, where the power emanates from. Kirk tells them to take aim and wait for my order. We have to know where Apollo is. Scott asks them to wait until Caroline gets back. We don't know what's going to happen. He's crazy. She, uh, She might get killed. Kirk agrees to wait, but he wonders if we can trust Caroline to do her duty. We cut back and uh, they're kissing again, her and Apollo. Oh no, it doesn't look like we're gonna be able to trust old Caroline here. She says, uh, it's funny the way you ape humans. It's astounding. She then calls him a specimen. We realize she's doing it. She's spurning him and tells him that she must get back to doing her due diligence and studying him. I can't feel any more for you than I could for a piece of bacteria. I'm a scientist, she says. But suddenly, this starts to feel dangerous, right? Love you. Be logical, she says. He demands that she stays. Oh, is this your secret to loving women? The thunderbolts you throw, she says. Caroline then walks away, and Apollo raises his hand as he provokes thunder and lightning. 
We go back to the crew at the temple and they wonder what it is. They wonder what it is. Did Kirk not have time to uh, fill them in? Because it seems pretty obvious to me that she spurned him, right? It must be working as planned. Maybe Kirk didn't have time to answer, but Spock calls. I see that there is an atmospheric disturbance happening around you. <laughs> the wind is whipping. The thunder thunders and the lightning lights or something. Carolina's toga appears to have fallen and she's holding it onto herself. Apollo appears among the clouds now. Oh, no. Caroline now appears to have fallen, is being hurt uh, by the weather. Kirk then decides that they have waited long enough. Fire, he tells to Spock, and they fire through the hand at the temple. Apollo arrives to see what is happening and tries to shoot back at the ships. Or power to shields, says Spock. Caroline arrives, and she looks like hell. Her makeup's gone, her dress is torn. Scott puts her behind a rock as if that'll help from an explosion. Uh, Apollo continues to fight back, but then the hand disappears and the temple is turned to rubble. Mamma mia, mamma mia. (laughs) Apollo walks among the ruins. I would have cherished you, he says, as a father loves his children. We've outgrown you, says Kirk. You've asked for something that we can no longer give. Apollo cries and looks to the heavens and tells them they are right. The time for gods has passed. He disappears. Everyone is sad. Kirk says, they gave- sad. Yeah, exactly. Kirk is sad. Scott is even sad, who didn't like Apollo very much, hitting on his lady. They gave us so much, says Kirk. Philosophy, art, laws. He second guesses himself for a moment. Could we have picked up some laurel leaves? Who mourns for Adonis, we ask? Now we all do. And that is that. So here we are, the fourth episode of the season and the fourth episode to go over budget. Of course we did. Uh, Who mourns for Adonis came in at $203,623, which equates to more than uh, $1.4 million for that episode in 2013 currency. And this, of course, went over the mandated Desilu per episode allowance of $23,623. Season two's complete deficit is now up to $100,000. Dun, dun, dun. The Red Week is now about to turn a brighter red. When the next episode is filmed, a muck time. I knew it was close. So this is another example here of Roddenberry having a big problem with uh, NBC. He says, I was shocked a week ago at the descriptions of our premiere episode, a muck time. Reading something like, Mr. Spock has a strange malady and is forced to fight Captain Kirk. That's all they put in the TV guide. I could not believe my eyes, said Roddenberry. Here we have chosen this episode over many others because of its enormous promotional value, because it would have shown Mr. Spock's millions of fans a look at his home world, plus the double whammy of the fact that Mr. Spock is going to was going there in the episode to marry and mate. I mean, can you top that? Yes, the second week's, second week's description did. With the fight that we have with all the other networks, all of our hard work writing on attracting audiences during these early weeks. I read a description for our second show in the LA Times and the LA Herald Examiner, which simply I cannot believe. It said, the leader of a Greek-like community, which 
is slowly becoming extinct, threatens the Enterprise crew unless they join his colony. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think somebody watched it at fast forward. No sound. Yeah. And just like, yeah, looks uh, Greek-like. I bet that guy's like the colony leader. He looks like some kind of alien. I don't know. Uh, here you go. Uh, Runberry goes on to say this in that letter. This is a story of a huge and strange creature who claims to be Apollo, the last of the Greek gods. This is a creature who reaches up from its planet with its hand and grabs the USS Enterprise to fight in flight. We know, Howard, what the upcoming storyline descriptions are, and something must be done about them now before we lose any more audience because of them. Millions of people judge what show they are going to watch based on these descriptions. This is a damned serious and damned important problem. Take so it's crazy news. because I'm trying. Go ahead. Fake news. What'd you say? Fake news. news. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. I'm trying to think. I know I used to read the uh, the TV guide a lot, but I don't know that I ever decided on a show whether or not the, the description sounded good. I think you used it as a planning document. You already knew That's what going to watch and what was good and what was worth looking into. Right. You need to know what time it was on and if it was going to be rerun at 2 a.m. and you could tape it. Did they move it? Did it suddenly yeah. go from Thursday to Friday? Oh, preempted by uh, Uruguay soccer. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah. I hate it when that happens. <laughs> so, uh, and another funny story, Jimmy Doohan dated Leslie Parrish for a little bit. He said, I met her on the show and dated her a couple times. There's just something about her. She was a charming dinner companion, absolutely gorgeous, but she also knew how to break down and be a good talker. Talker. There was no airs about her at all, he said. Leslie Parrish went on to say, the cast was absolutely great. James Doohan was a darling, darling man, such a sweetheart. You couldn't know him and not love him. So that's pretty cute. And uh, that's it. That's all that I've got on that episode of uh, Who Mourns for Adonis. Again, the answer is us. So sad. Uh, anything else about this episode we need to hit before we wrap it up, sir? No, I believe uh, I believe we've covered the bases. Love it. Well, that's it then. As always, my name's Matt coming to you from Austin. Um, oh, what's next week's show? I should know that. Insert it's next week's show here. You mentioned it. It's, uh, Spock Goes Home. I will consult. Computer. Computer. <laughs> exactly. Oh, it is a muck time. Yeah, there you go. Sorry. Time. Okay, well, great. Well, that is it. Another fine episode of the show. Hope you all enjoyed it. Next week, a muck time. We're finally getting there. We thought it was the first episode. Nope, it's the fifth episode. Little did we know. But we got lots to talk about on that. So everybody, please tune in for that. It's going to be exciting. As always, I'm Matt coming to you from an Austin. From an Austin? Not the Austin. It's just an Austin. Coming to you from Austin. And as always, is my brother Ken. Say goodbye, Ken. Live long and prosper. As always, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, YouTube, anywhere you want to. We'll be there. There you go. And hey, we will see you all next week.